Well, thank you. This is, this is a strange feeling. It's, uh, well, like John said, my name is Isaac, if you didn't know that. A um, couple things about me, since normally I'm hiding behind my guitar and singing, and I don't normally have to tell you anything about myself. Um, so we've been in Jersey about two and a half years now. Uh, been married to my wife, Lydia, for six years. Uh, we have two wonderful children. Our daughter, Olive, is three years old, and our son, Ivor, just turned one. Uh, about two and a half years ago, we moved here uh, from Las Vegas, where we lived out there for six or seven years. I can never remember looking back on it. Um, and what else? Oh, I met my wife out there. She's generally from the Chicago area, and I grew up in Georgia and Florida. So when people ask where we're from, I say lots of places. Uh, it does feel strange to be up here without a band. Well, actually, first of all, one thing I've learned about New Jersey, uh, I always joke with the staff, you know, living here for a couple years, getting to know things. One thing I always say is you're not allowed to like anything. <laughs> Let me, for example, if you were starving in the middle of nowhere and someone brought you a New Jersey resident, a Domino's pizza, you would starve. You'd say, nah, I'd rather just not eat today. Or if you, you come into the office and you say, wow, I had a great sandwich this afternoon at this place. And they'd say, no, that's not a sandwich. <laughs> or that's not a bagel. You're not allowed to like that thing. Uh, it does feel strange to be up here without music playing. Um, it generally makes everything just feel a little better. So Maggie, could you just, we'll play some music here. We'll just let it go for about 30 minutes, yep. <laughs> and now everything I'm about to say will most likely sound more profound. Just kidding. I think I can handle it. But it will end that way, and it will get more profound when it does end that way. Um, I grew up in church, so I'm generally comfortable in church. My dad was on staff at a church, uh, so I grew to be very comfortable even just in the walls of the church, even just standing in the building. Uh, as a staff kid, uh, John can probably speak to this, you learn all the nooks and crannies, you climb in the attics, you, you're comfortable being here. Uh, it's been really cool to see the, the same thing happening with my kids, uh, running the hallways of the church, uh, Olive riding her scooter in the church, sorry Renee, um, but there's comfortability being here uh, for our family. Uh, and I'm sure for them it'll become a place like home. Uh, but as comfortable as I am in church and around church, uh, this spot feels very foreign to me. Uh, growing up in church, I always just assumed, you know, like how you always think your parents know everything? I always just assumed whoever they put in charge of talking just knows everything. Um, so I stand here as a guy who doesn't know everything, um, but thankful to get to have a chance to share this morning, even in my underqualified state. Um, this morning, we're going to talk, our But God story we're going to talk about is all about how we deal with battles that we face in our lives. Um, for me, as this, this topic, the story we're going to go through really clicked with me. It felt really comfortable. Uh, it, it was a cool story, and it, it felt like it was going to be easy to talk, to talk to about. But I started to think in my life, I'm thinking, like, what, what battles have I really faced? Uh, like the story we're going to talk about, I've never faced an army. I've never faced a giant. I've, I've never come in contact with that sort of danger. What did I face? And uh, last week, we got the chance to go to the beach, and I was thinking about this, and all of our three-year-old was just, she was loving it. You know, she's just, she's not really spent much time at the beach. Uh, she was running around like, I love the beach. I love seagulls. I love ocean. I love water. She was very excited uh, everywhere around there. 
but she really loved to go out in the water with me. So we'd go out in the water about chest deep. She'd stand in front of me. And these waves, they're not big waves, but to her, you know, they're like twice her size. Not a sense of fear, not a sense of danger. And we would stand there and she would jump. Uh, I would lift her over the waves. But she liked to jump in the waves. And it, as I was standing there with her, I'm thinking, it has never occurred to her that one of these waves can just smack her right in the face, just take her right out. Um, and then I started thinking about my life in the way that, you know, uh, there's plenty of things that have come my way that were battles big enough to smack me in the face, uh, but I wasn't standing alone. Um, or maybe the rearview mirror is viewed through a lens of the comforting outcomes. Uh, looking on my life where I stand now makes it hard to remember the battles that I faced and the things I've gone through. The present stage that I'm in, which is one where you can't find a moment of alone, alone even to go to the bathroom, you can't sneak away for a moment, uh, makes me forget about the times where I was so overcome with loneliness living thousands of miles away from my family, alone in Vegas, where all I could do was sit there in my apartment and cry and wonder when I'm gonna get to go see my family again. So when we look back on our lives, sometimes we stand in those outcomes and we forget all the battles that we face. Or when I say that, you might think, of course, I'm in a battle right now. We all struggle with things. Uh, when I think about it, there's never really a time that we're not in a battle for something. Uh, it's temptations or doubts or doubting career choices uh, or a general fear and anxiety about the state of the world, especially when you think about raising our kids. And you think, well, what's, what's the world going to look like when they're older? Uh, I don't think there's ever been a generation that wasn't worried about the current state of the world. Um, and we fear these things that are coming at us from all sides. Uh, for others, you're dealing with the deep sadness of loss of loved ones, of people that, that you never pictured your life without. And now you're in that, that battle, that moment where you start to wonder what things look like from now on. Or these things compound on each other. Uh, this is one that I'll talk about a little bit, where this anxiety keeps you up at night. Uh, the lack of sleep then continues to worsen things by messing with your health, and then your health messes with your work, and then you've already been struggling financially as it is, and it just seems to fall apart. And as your world is collapsing, some bro you went to Facebook with is bragging about his Tesla he bought with Dogecoin. You know, the world is falling apart and you're wondering, how is everyone else doing this? Um, or maybe, uh, I was thinking about this, it's relevant to what I'll talk about in a little bit, maybe you're uh, on the verge of dropping a student off at college for the first year, or any of the years, you're taking them and you're letting them go out into that unknown. Uh, I have a very clear and vivid memory of my second year, my mom dropped me off at college. Uh, she had this thing where she'd come with us and, you know, she'd have all the things that we bought from Target. We'd have the perfect dorm room and she'd help us get it all set up. Everything was in its place. Nothing was broken. It smelled nice. And she would joke and she'd say, in my mind, this entire year, this is what it will look like. So I will never be back here and it will always be perfect. Uh, but that year, uh, when she was dropping me off, she said, be safe, Isaac. And I thought, you know, as a mature 19-year-old standing in my room she funded, thinking, I'm an adult, Mom. I'll be safe. Of course I'll be safe. And I was a little offended, you know. But I think she knew the battles that I had been dealing with and the, the roads I was headed down weren't really the best choices for my life. They weren't really what God had planned for me. And I'll never forget that the last thing she said to me in the kind, strong way that she has, she said, I'll stop worrying about you when your heart's right. Well, my mom gave me a hug and walked out of the room, and she knew that I was facing a battle 
uh, there and that she was in that battle with me more or less, but she knew uh, the battle was not hers. So whose battle was it? Uh, this morning we're going to talk about God battling for us. Uh, the story we're going to go into is in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 20. It's, it follows the story of King Jehoshaphat. So if you've, if you've read through any of the Old Testament, it follows this ebb and flow of, of, bless, of, of obedience and blessing and uh, disobedience and, and cursing or, or punishment of God. So these people fall in and out of these, these seasons of following God and, and enjoying the riches of God and then falling out and enjoying the punishment, I guess not enjoying. Uh, so by the time we reach chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat has built his kingdom on obedience of God and the Mosaic Law, then made alliances outside God's will. He nearly dies. God spares him. And now in chapter 20, uh, we find Jehoshaphat building the kingdom of Jerusalem and Judah, uh, in places, put in places people to keep in this word of God. The Levites are there. They're teaching uh, the Mosaic law. They're keeping the commandments of the Lord. We find them in deep obedience, following his will. So chapter 20, verse 3 says, oh, until, yes, we'll get there, until uh, these three armies come together to attack their kingdom. These three people groups join together, this massive coalition of forces, and Jehoshaphat hears of this, and this is what he says, uh, or this is what happens. But then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah that came, oh, from all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. So everything's great. And then all of a sudden they hear these three armies have joined together to join forces so large that they stand no chance. Uh, you can see the current state of Judah by the reaction of the king and his people. Jehoshaphat's first move is to set his face to seek the, the Lord of God. Um, they were afraid and outnumbered, and they've come together to fast and seek the Lord. Um, I think that's a lot more noble than most of us would do in the face of imminent danger, especially thinking of fasting, you know, let's, let's be hungry and weak for this war. Uh, but they fasted and seek the Lord. Uh, then Jehoshaphat addresses the assembled people and calls upon the Lord. He says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not able, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it, to, give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear and save us. So the first thing Jehoshaphat does as he stands in front of these people that are seeking the Lord with him is he looks at them and says, Look at all the things that the Lord has done and calls on him to do it again. Uh, this is, these proclamations are simultaneously giving God the glory for all their previous, previous victories and calling on God to do it again. Uh, in the verse after this, he goes on to describe the way their obedience has actually put them in this situation. Verse 10 says, But now here are men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power in the face of this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. 
So Jehoshaphat then says, look, Lord, we're here in this situation because we did what you told us to do. We left these people alone, and now we find ourselves with them all teamed up against us, coming against us, and we stand here all together with our little ones before the Lord, wondering what's going to happen. And they stood there humbly asking for his rescue. I imagine my little family standing there, Lydia, Olive, Ivor, just huddled together, uh, wondering what's next. I'm not a warrior myself. Uh, I, my willingness to fight and die for my family may not translate anything to their safety. I might just, you know, whistle out and go. Uh, I've never even been hunting. Uh, I haven't even killed a deer with my car yet. So in New Jersey, I'm sure it will happen, but you know, I, I, can't, I can't know what I would do in the face of that danger standing there with my helpless family. So they stand there waiting to hear what the Lord has to say to them. And they continue to fast and seek the Lord. Uh, then a Levite, who were sort of the church officials of the day, stands up and delivers a message to his people. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. And, and first of all, you got to think, how can I not be afraid? Come on, man. Like, what, don't you know what's going on? Don't you see how big this army is? Don't you see how in for it we are? Uh, if, in our situations, we think, like, do you see my situation? Do you, have you heard my di diagnosis? Do you know the financial distress that we're in? Have you watched the news lately? Do you not know what's going on? Surely we will not survive this. Um, but what would, what would he actually have to say to make the people or to make you stop fearing? In verse 15, he lays it out there and he says, For the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out in the face of them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. We're saved! It's that simple, right? I, and all the people in this situation, all the people fell down and they worshiped the Lord. Rescue had been given to them, not just that they will win. Winning a battle comes with a cost. You go to war, you lose people. You might win the battle and you go to this war, but, but fathers don't come home. Brothers are killed. People are lost. But what God says to them, you will not even have to fight this battle. This battle isn't yours, but God's. All you have to do is show up. This next part is great. Uh, this is where the story takes a turn for the crazy, or the radical, I guess you could say. Uh, the next day, they, they head out to go face this army that's approaching. Jehoshaphat once again emphasizes to them to have faith in the Lord and have faith in what was told to them. And I think that part's funny, too, because you've got to think, like, one night's sleep, and you're like, okay, I know he said that yesterday. Like, I think in our situation, so John, we're, we're here yesterday, John stands up here. I like John, right? I trust John. But he says, you're saved. You start to think, I mean, is he right? Like, are we really safe? I've had a nice, nice rest to think about it. I was feeling really good about this yesterday. Uh, but today, uh, I don't know, this still feels a little scary. Uh, so Jehoshaphat takes and he emphasizes them to have faith. Um, he reassures them. And then they all decide together to do something radical. What they do is they send out a group of worshipers to lead the way for the army. So these people are headed out, and they send the worshipers first. They show their great faith in what God has, has told them that they will not have to fight. So they don't even bother with war, warriors, men on horses, shields. They send a choir dressed in their choir robes. Um, 
if you grew up in church, you know that, you know, there was the choir room. They had these racks and racks of rows of just choir robes. So I'm imagining there's like a war room and there's a choir robe room. And he's like, oh, you don't need that stuff. Just grab your choir robe. We're going to head to war. All right, I'll see you out there. Grab your choir robe. We're going to be dressed looking fine, singing God's praises. So they send out these, these worshipers ahead of this army, and they start to sing the praise of God, of their salvation and their rescue in this face of the battle. And in verse 22, it says, As they begin to sing, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Mount Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Mount Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So the Lord does something to this coalition of, of three armies where chaos breaks loose and they just kill each other. So you got this group of people in their choir robes standing there singing the praises of the Lord. And then way down in the valley, chaos breaks loose. And they all take care of each other. So it's, even, in, even in the face of this, this huge army, vast numbered, vastly outnumbered, this, these people stood strong and they worshiped the Lord. And they won the battle in a way that doesn't even make sense. Though we, re we read it, we don't know what happened. But it doesn't make sense other than that God intervened and gave them the victory in the battle. And keeping true to the pattern of Old Testament stories, this, this was a season of obedience. This battle was not uh, a preparation for a punishment for God's people. It was a blessing in multiple senses. First of all, it gave an opportunity to test and show their faith to the Lord. Uh, what a blessing to see God move in such a massive way, to be standing there on the edge of your destruction and to see God physically move uh, and stand before you and fight your battle for you. For their entire lives, that's something they can look back on and see this, this moment in time. And secondly, the people were blessed with all the plunder of the battlefield. Chronicle says it took, it took three days to carry all the equipment, clothing, and things of value back to Jerusalem. Only yesterday, the family stood on the edge of battle, wondering the fate of their children and their future. But God fought their battles, and they stand in his victory among all the valuables of their enemies. They're just they're surrounded by the blessing of the Lord. There are so many of these stories of, of God fighting the battles of his people all throughout the Bible. Uh, one story known inside and outside the church is David versus Goliath. Even if you don't know the details of the story, you know that Goliath means something really big, and David represents something really small. So in Samuel 17, the Philistines show up, these, these enemies of the Israelites, and they, they form their battle lines, and the Philistines send out Goliath as their champion warrior, this nine-foot-nine beast of a man wearing 126 pounds of armor. Big old dude. And this idea of the, the champions. So you get your battle lines, they send out a champion to have this one-on-one -on -one battle, and that will determine who wins this battle. So for 40 days, Goliath comes out and taunts the Israelites, challenges them to a fight. you got to imagine a nine-foot-nine guy is probably saying, come out, you little guys, come on, fight me. Someone, someone, come out, come out here. If the God you're talking about is so powerful, come fight me. And he taunts them for 40 days. Uh, then towards the end, I'm assuming, of those days, uh, a shepherd boy named David comes to the front lines to bring bro his brothers and the army some supplies and to check and see how his brothers are doing. Uh, David then overhears what, what Goliath is saying about Israel and says, why does this guy think he can talk about the people of the living God like that? He sees no reason why God would lose this battle. Uh, his brothers 
Uh, Davis brothers hear him talking this way and say, like, who are you to think that you could do anything in this fight? Uh, you're just a boy. Uh, David then ends up in front of King Saul and tells Saul he will go up against the Philistine. And this is the chain exchange that happens between the two of them. And verse 33, says, Saul replied, you were not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has, has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, I think we've talked about circumcision enough in the last couple weeks. Um, but this uncircumcised Philistine, this man who is not of our living people, or of the living God, will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from his, the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to God, go and the Lord be with you. So immediately with, with David talking to Saul, we see the exact same thing the people uh, of Jehoshaphat's kingdom did. What they did was they stood there and they spouted off all the ways that they've seen God move already. Why now do I have any reason to doubt what God will do for his people? David knows this fight is not his, but it's God's. So Saul concedes to allowing this, this shepherd boy to go out as, to be the champion of the Israelites to fight Goliath. Uh, they attempt to arm David with uh, armor and sword and shield, and, and David says, no, this is not me. I'm not comfortable in this. This is not, he's not a warrior. He's not used to that. So he heads out with his typical tools and equipment. He grabs his staff. He grabs his sling, and he goes to the river and grabs some nice rocks. Uh, and then in verse 45, we see what happens. Uh, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And what happens next is a victory that only God can get credit for. A shepherd boy kills a giant with a stone to the head. The living God of Israel shows his power to fight the battles of his people, and they have great victory over the Philistines. And as many times as I've heard that story, uh, I, this, this week in preparing for this, John sent me a sermon by Tim Keller that was talking about David, and it was a new way that I saw it, and I looked at it based on what Keller had said. And he was talking about the way that when we talk about the story of David and Goliath, generally it's some sort of prescriptive measure of how you're supposed to act and how you're supposed to stir up this courage within inside of you. And you're supposed to do these things. You're supposed to be great and strong like David. Um, and we picture ourselves in his shoes. But the cool take on it that clicked with me was that when we look at the story, we shouldn't place ourselves in the shoes of David. But we were really standing uh, in the army, watching David, who goes before us to provide victory for his people in the same way that Jesus went before as our champion against sin and death to bring us salvation through him. But God fought that battle for us through Jesus. And this idea that, that we stood helpless on the lines with nothing able to do, nothing that we could stand against Goliath with, and, and 
Jesus went forward against the Goliath of sin and death and conquered all of that. And David, in the same way, for his people, went and stood as representation of God for his people. And God acted through him to bring rescue to his people. The story we often tell ourselves is that the enemy is too big, the fight is too formidable, and our strength too little. But the scriptures over and over again attempt to remind God's people that the battle is against sin, the battle is against evil, and even the battle against death is not ours to win or lose. We don't hold the outcomes in our hands. God holds the outcomes. Another quick story showing God's presence in battle is, is in 2 Kings 6. Uh, King Aram is upset with Elisha, a great prophet of God, and sends out his army to capture him in the city. Uh, they show up at night, so Elisha and his servant wake up, and they go out, and they see surrounded all around them on, on the hillsides are horses and chariots there to capture Elisha. Uh, the servant is afraid and asks Elisha, what should we do? Elisha responds. He says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So in this moment, the army was already there. Elisha's servant just hadn't seen them. Elisha's eyes were focused on the enemy. They weren't, or Elisha's servant's eyes were focused on the enemy that was present and visible, but he didn't see the army of God that surrounded uh, that army. But God opens his eyes so he could see that this army was no problem for God. Long story short, in that one, they, Elisha prays and has this army deceived and sent to the wrong city where there's a feast prepared for them. They realize they're deceived, they get well fed, and they get sent back to King Aram. And King Aram realizes the power of the God he's messing with and decides to just call it all off. And the reason I explained the whole story is because we got three different battles here that have all been fought by God and that have been all been fought and won in different ways. Some uh, with a direct conquering like Goliath, one with an indirect conquering uh, like in King Jehoshaphat's story. And in this one, they just fed him and sent him home and destroyed the threat. So what does this mean for us? Uh, how do these stories relate to the things that we are facing? Uh, I can't speak to your individual battles. Um, living on this side of Jesus, though, gives us a whole new hope. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul speaks to the followers of Jesus in the same way Elisha spoke to open the eyes of his servant. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We are to set our hope on things beyond this world. We are to set our hope on, on Jesus alone, above all else. Uh, we can't be promised a traditional victory in every circumstance in life. Uh, no one ever gets out of old age, right? Like there's, there's not much else in the end for anybody. Uh, we can't always win these battles in very specific ways or where they feel like traditional victories. 
uh, but we are to look to Jesus as our source of hope in this life and the knowledge that our victory in him is in eternity. Uh, I think one of the scariest parts about standing before you is, is the personal stories, the sharing, like, one, well, why would you want to hear from me? And then two, like, it, it's, it's scary to, to tell you things that I'm dealing with. It's scary to, to be open, right? And so, uh, again, I can't speak to your individual struggles. I don't know. I don't know what you're going through, but I can tell you the ways that I've seen God fight a couple battles in my life. Now, one of, one of the stories is, is how I got here in New Jersey. Uh, so, in 2019, the summer of 2019 or so, we had just had our daughter, Olive, and we were in Las Vegas, and I had been there for a long time. I had been in that role at the church I was out there at for a long time, and, and me and Lydia just both started to feel like we just, we don't feel like this is the right place for us. Nothing was wrong. Nothing was, there wasn't anything terrible going on, but we just both had this uneasiness about us feeling that God had something else for us, and that in this season was a season of, of change, but we didn't know what to do. Uh, in that specific role there, there wasn't really a trajectory that I saw myself on of growth there where I saw, okay, I have a future here. Or uh, it just didn't, you know, you know those times in your life you just you feel like there's change coming. And in that specific situation, I didn't feel like I had the openness to be able to go search for a job. So I was worried that once I started searching that I was going to have to find one. Um, and so I was just really torn, I was really confused, and I didn't know what to do. And I'm, I'm really close to my dad, and so I was talking to him, and I was like, Dad, how do I do this? And he says what he always says, well, have you been praying about it? I'm like, yeah, 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 I guess. And then he said, okay, well, just wait, just don't do anything. Just wait till someone reaches out to you. And I thought, wow, Dad, what terrible advice. <laughs> you know, I'm stressed out, I'm worried, I'm struggling. Do nothing. Okay, great. I, this is... This is going to go great. And I don't know if it was because I waited or it just happened so quickly. Um, within two days, um, a guy y'all probably know named Aaron Fessler, he's been here for a long time, but he had, I met him out in Las Vegas, and he just randomly sent me a message. And he said, hey, the church I go to here in New Jersey is looking to hire a worship pastor. Would you be interested? And I thought, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about Jersey, right? I've never been here. I'm not speaking bad about Jersey, but I thought, I never thought about New Jersey. And I thought, well, maybe this is just God saying, okay, it's time to go look. Um, and Aaron insisted, he was like, you should talk to John and Renee, the people out here. Uh, I had one conversation with them, and I was like, wow, like this really could be the place for our family. Uh, and I took that, and I went and applied to a church um, in Georgia, right by where my family was, because I assumed, you know, I should be, you know, like, we really want to be close to family. Who doesn't want to be close to family? And I applied to a church which I thought looked like a good fit, and I had one conversation with them, and I thought, that ain't it. And I just kept talking to John and Renee, and, and God just placed it on our hearts. This was just, all right, we're moving to New Jersey. We're going to have some strong opinions about pizza and bagels. We're going to grow into all of that. Um, but really, it, it's been amazing the way that God aligned those things at the right times. And, and the battle just sort of fell apart in our hearts and in our lives. It, it, it wasn't a battle for us to fight. It was a battle that God took care of for us. And the other thing that I, I struggle with a lot is anxiety and worry. Uh, I'm a pretty easy guy, going guy if you know me. Most of my um, worries are always health-related. My, my family always 
Uh, from a young age growing up, they always tried to not tell me too many things because I just assume I had it, you know, like classic hypochondriac. I blame it on one, one time I fell out of a tree uh, when I was I'm probably in middle school. I fell out of a tree. Every, I was laying there on the couch. Everyone was there checking on me. I hit my head pretty hard. And we decided I might be okay. And my sister came into the room and she said, well, he could have internal bleeding. <laughs> so we went right to the hospital because I was freaking out. Until this day, I blame my sister Allison on my, my worries. Uh, but specifically with my health, I, I'm, and I'm fine, but <laughs> yeah. I had, I had thyroid problems when I was 19, and those overdriven systems led to abnormal heart rhythm stuff that I've, they're all benign rhythms, but you know, your body sort of panics when you have these bad rhythms, and I still deal with them. Like the, the physiological reaction to a bad rhythm is to cause panic and concern in you. And so I go through different seasons of still having these rhythms, and again, they're safe. And I know that, but I don't know that, right? And so, and these things compound, like I said earlier, I'll, I'll be having these bad rhythms, and then I can't sleep at night. And then when I don't sleep at night, the rhythms get worse because my body's exhausted. And then I lose weeks at a time, I feel like, of my mental state. Like I lose weeks of, of worrying about this constantly. I lose weeks of time of not having fun with my kids. I spend weeks of time just worrying about this constantly. And I always come back in my head to that verse that says, who amongst you can add even one hour of your life to your life by worry and fear? And, and I say that as something that I'm constantly dealing with. Because eventually I get to that place and think, well, God has laid out the steps before me. He's sent me great cardiologists that already told me I'm probably not going to drop dead. They said definitely. They say I'm definitely not. <laughs> but to me, it turns into probably, and it turns into, yeah, you're. And so I say that as, as I do struggle with letting God fight that battle for me. I struggle with letting go of my feeling of needing to control my own existence and feeling like my worry is what's going to finally make me find the right doctor that finds the one specific... I watched House too much, I think, growing up. <laughs> and then the last one, the story about my mom dropping me off at college. It's just... It always resonates with me, and I always think back to it. The amount of grace it took from my mom to watch me struggle, to watch me slowly slip away from, you know, the foundation that they had laid in my life and, and God had placed in my life and the things that God had placed in my life. And I just turned from all that stuff. And I think of the battle of a parent. I think about my kids now, and I think about the scariness of dropping me off at college and not knowing what influences would be there, again, to pull me the wrong direction. And I think of that power of her not slapping me on the head with the Bible, not telling me how bad of a kid I'm being, but just saying, you know, when your heart's right, when you turn that, your heart to God, like things, you're, you're going to be safe. You're going to be okay. And little did she know that a couple weeks past that, like right after that, um, in that same dorm room, probably with some broken things and it smelled a little worse, um, but in that very dorm room is, is really where God confronted me with all this stuff. And I, I really, those were the, that was the moment where I felt like I finally gave in to what God had called me to be, which was a follower of him. Uh, that's the moment where I actually turned and gave it to him and then got to see the power of all the years of praying for my parents, all the years of, of them letting God fight that battle in my life with me. And they had to hand that off. And, and the fear of having to do that with my own kids 
is crazy, and the worry can get crazy, but knowing that God fights that battle for me. So main things to take away from today. Um, just like in all of these stories, just like in all of these things, one major thing that we can do in our life is point ourselves to the things that we've seen happen. Whether that's the stories of old, whether that's the stories we just read today, we can be reminded constantly, time and time again, that God has moved in the lives of the people that follow him. And then we can also remember our stories. Like I can look back and think about the ways that God has provided. He's put me in the right room with the right doctors to tell me the right things. He's, you know, stopped me from climbing so many trees. I don't know. But, the, but you look around and you see the victories that he's given me in my life. And I, I think back to those moments. Well, if he did that then, I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. You can look around to the people around you and say, I see, I've seen him move there. I know that he's present and he's moving in my life. He's the same God as he was then as he is now. Another big thing from today's story in Chronicles, we can put worship before our warriors and our worry. We don't have to control. We don't have to take charge of all these things. We don't have to be the one that's fixing all these problems. We just have to be the ones that are willing to stand and worship in whatever's falling apart around us. Stand and putting our worship before our worries. Um, putting him before my fears and my concerns, knowing that he fights these battles in our life. And it's not up to us finally being good enough or finally being strong enough or finally being brave enough or to be right enough, but for him to fight these things. And last, we can rest and trust in the power of God. In all of these stories, God brings rest on those who went to battle. At the end of the chapter in Jehoshaphat's story, it says, so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. As followers of Jesus, we can be assured that in the end, there is rest, even not in life, in eternity. So it's not, it's not a matter of how good things might turn out here. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in things eternal. Our hope is not always in traditional victories or traditional winning moments or feeling like we're finally on top, uh, but it's to trust that there is rest in the end. There is an eternity for the Savior who gave it all to rescue us. So today, before we leave this room, we head back to our battles, our worries, our fears, our concerns. Uh, we're going to take some more time and to sing about that, that God. Sing about the God of these stories. Sing about the God that's been present in your life. And we call on him to do it again. So let's stand and sing.